0: My history can beat up your politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 203, Dominica and St. Lucia. The French fleet under Admiral De Stang had come to America in July 1778, as part of the new Franco-American alliance. France and Britain had gone to war a few months earlier. France hoped to use the war in America to take advantage of a weakened Britain and recover some of the colonies that it had lost to Britain in the Seven Years' War. Before the war, some French leaders even hoped that the North American colonies in rebellion might be willing to put themselves under the authority and protection of the King of France. While it quickly became apparent that that would not happen, an independent North America would weaken Britain and perhaps at least open up some valuable trading relationships. With the control of North America seemingly off the table, France focused more on the West Indies, or what we today call the Caribbean. These island colonies brought immense amounts of wealth to whoever controlled them. I'm not going to go through the exact breakdown of who controlled which islands, since there are probably over a hundred little islands, some of which were divided between multiple countries. These very frequently changed hands over the course of the 18th century. Of course, at the time, Spain dominated the region with its control of Cuba and San Domingo, the island that today makes up Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Spain also controlled almost all of the mainland around what we today call the Gulf of Mexico, as well as Central America. Spain had gotten there early, at the end of the 15th century, and dominated the region before other European powers even took an interest. Spanish officials had largely enslaved the local population, but that population also very quickly died out, mostly due to a lack of resistance to European diseases. Spain had no interest in colonizing these new lands with free Spanish colonists. Rather, Spanish officials wanted to produce crops, primarily sugar, which grew well in this region, for the benefit of Europeans and for making massive profits. Maximizing profits meant keeping labor costs down. Allowing local free colonists to run local plantations would mean that most of the profits would go there. Instead, Spanish officials turned to African slavery as the primary labor force for these island colonies. By the 18th century, all of the islands were dominated by African slave labor. As other countries, such as Britain, France, and the Netherlands claimed ownership of various islands, they also used African slave labor as the primary labor force on their islands. As a result, these islands were producing a massive amount of wealth for the colonizers at very little cost for the labor force on the islands. As other European powers saw Spanish wealth grow, they of course wanted to get in on the action. France had settled several colonies, the largest of which eventually became Haiti. Britain settled on some of the smaller islands, including the Bahamas and Jamaica, The Netherlands occupied several small islands as well. Even Denmark colonized a few of what today are the U.S. Virgin Islands. Whenever these countries went to war or saw weakness, they were quick to seize more islands for themselves. So, as I said, control frequently went back and forth, with the slaves continuing to do the work for the new owners. When France ended the Seven Years' War, it not only ceded Canada to Britain, It also ceded a number of islands, including Grenada, St. Vincent, and Dominica. Britain had captured St. Lucia during the war, but turned it back over to France when the war ended. As the rebellion in America began in 1775, France and Britain were still at peace. Various French governors gave support to American privateers, but could not recapture any of the islands they may have wanted. Once the war actually began between the two countries in 1778, taking back islands and protecting one's own islands became an active concern for both France and Britain. The area known as the Leeward Islands were some of the most vulnerable properties at risk. The Leeward Islands were a series of islands on the eastern end of the Caribbean that includes Martinique, Grenada, Dominica, St. Lucia, and some others. In 1778, the British commander in the West Indies was Admiral Samuel Barrington. I won't spend too much time giving a background on him, because it's the same old story I've told on so many other officers. Barrington was the fourth son of a British aristocracy. His father, John Barrington, was a Viscount. Although the Barringtons lived in England, their peerage was in Ireland, meaning he could not sit in the House of Lords so Lord Barrington held a seat in the commons. The father was expelled from Parliament before Samuel was born for supporting an illegal lottery. He ran for office several more times but never succeeded. He died when Samuel was only five years old. Samuel's older brother, William Barrington, inherited the father's land and title, and at age 11, Samuel was shipped off to sea. By age 17, he was lieutenant in the British Navy. Because his older brother was serving in the Admiralty, Barrington saw a pretty meteoric rise through the ranks, making captain by age 18. He received several plumb positions and earned favorable opinions of several admirals under which he served. Captain Barrington saw active combat during the Seven Years' War and commanded a ship in the fleet under Admiral John Byron That captured Louisbourg from the French. After the war, Barrington spent several years in Europe studying other navies and naval defenses, particularly in Russia and France. In 1768, Barrington received command of an important junior officer, the Duke of Cumberland, who was George III's younger brother. The two men formed a close and long lasting relationship. Samuel Barrington's navy career continued to receive favor at least in part because his brother became Secretary of War and also served as Chancellor of the Exchequer. By 1778, though, older brother William was sick of the war and ready to retire. He did so by the end of the year. But before leaving in 1778, Samuel received a promotion to Rear Admiral of the White and a commission as Commander-in-Chief of the Leeward Island Station. Admiral Barrington sailed for the West Indies aboard his flagship, the Prince of Wales, in May 1778. When he arrived, he had only two ships under his command, both operating out of Barbados. Barrington's primary concern on arrival was the French garrison at Martinique, which included several large ships of the line and several thousand soldiers. Initially, Barrington had only his own ship and one other ship of the line to contest all of the Leeward Islands with France. More ships would arrive from North America after several months, but French forces posed an immediate threat to multiple islands. Barrington followed orders from London to consolidate his forces at Barbados in order to deter an attack there. With Britain and France having just gone to war, Military attacks, though, were only a matter of time. The island of Dominica sat just north of Martinique. Christopher Columbus gave the island its name because he found it on a Sunday. The small island's lack of any valuables and resistant natives meant that the Spanish largely ignored the island. France had laid claim to the whole string of islands in the early 17th century, but again did not bother to settle Dominica. Britain and France signed a treaty leaving the island a neutral and settled only by the local natives. In the early 18th century, France began to set up timber camps on the island to collect wood. Later, it established coffee plantations on the island. The French introduced African slaves for labor. Also, a group of poor French colonists from a failed revolt on Martinique moved to the island. Britain captured the island during the Seven Years' War and kept the island after the war ended. With the outbreak of war in 1778, France saw an opportunity to reclaim Dominica. The British governor of the island, Thomas Shirley, was the son of William Shirley, who you may remember from early episodes of this podcast, the royal governor of Massachusetts in the 1740s and 50s. In 1756, Governor Shirley had lost his job in Massachusetts, because he was seen as a little too pro-colonist and not supportive of London's policies. After a few years in England, William Shirley got an appointment as governor of the Bahamas. The elder Shirley ruled for about a decade, keeping relative peace and quiet in the Bahamas during an era when colonial protests over Parliament's tax policies were creating problems elsewhere. In 1767, William Shirley wanted to retire for health reasons and returned to England. His son, Thomas Shirley, left England for the Bahamas to take over for his father. Technically, William Shirley remained governor, even though he was back in England. His son, Thomas, was only acting governor. In 1774, though, after his father died and London wanted to appoint a new governor of the Bahamas, Thomas received an official appointment as governor of Dominica. The following year, after the rebellion began in New England, Governor Shirley saw the potential vulnerability of Dominica and began building up defenses on the island. London objected to the costs of such defenses, which got the governor in trouble with the ministry. In June 1778, Shirley had to sail home for consultations. Shirley left command to his lieutenant governor, William Stewart. One reason that London probably objected to Shirley spending money on defenses was that, no matter how much he spent, Dominica was a tiny island with a tiny British population. Most of the island inhabitants were French-speaking locals who had no interest and might even welcome a French attempt to retake the island. Dominica was right next to a much larger French island, Martinique, so any defense the British built on Dominica was not likely going to stop a French invasion from Martinique. Shirley tried to make his case to London, but ministry officials told him, Shirley, you can't be serious. to which he responded, I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. While Governor Shirley was in London, word of the war reached the West Indies. The governor of the French West Indies, François-Claude Amour, the Marquis de Boulay, received the news of the war in August, along with instructions to capture Dominica. Now, Dominica at this point had about a hundred regulars on the island, not enough to mount any serious resistance. Governor du Goulet's only military concern was whether there were any French navy ships that might be available to thwart an invasion. Governor du Goulet signed a treaty with Lieutenant Governor Stewart agreeing that neither island would provide harbor to enemy privateers. He used that as an opportunity to scout out the island and make sure the navy was not around. The British had ordered all naval ships to Barbados, so Dominica was in fact vulnerable. France still had civilians on the island, and they favored French rule, and may have sent some undercover soldiers who blended in with the French-speaking population they got word to the local French militia not to turn out if the British called on them. Some also managed to get into Fort Cachacro and get the local British soldiers drunk and pour sand into their cannons, thus making them temporarily inoperable. On the night of September 6th, a fleet carried about 1,800 French soldiers and another 1,000 militia volunteers aboard ships at Martinique. At dawn the next morning, the fleet easily overran the fort with a drunk garrison and inoperable cannons. The British attempted to call out their own militia, but could only get about a hundred locals to muster. The British managed to put up a little more resistance when the French moved on the capital of Rousseau. British artillery inflicted about 40 casualties on the attacking French. Within a few hours, though, the French managed to capture the high ground and quickly accepted the British surrender. The entire operation was over less than 24 hours after the French fleet left Martinique. Normally, a French invasion force would plunder the locals and loot anything of value. However, the French in this case wanted to retain local support. Instead, they demanded a ransom of 4,400 pounds sterling to be distributed to the French soldiers. With Dominica secure, the French left a force of about 800 on the island and returned to Martinique. The British were surprised by how easily the island had fallen and blamed Lord Barrington for failing to use the British navy to protect the island, in spite of his orders to move his ships to Barbados. Since retaking Dominica seemed that it would take more resources than the British could expend at the time, they turned their attention to the island of St. Lucia. Just to the south of Martinique, St. Lucia had a little more activity in early colonial era than Dominica. The Spanish explorers noted the island's existence as early as 1500, but did not bother to settle it or do much of anything other than claim it was part of Spain. In the mid-1500s, the island became a base of operation for the famous French pirate François Leclerc. In 1605, an English ship got blown off course and decided to settle on St. Lucia. The local natives spent the next few months attacking and raiding the colony. Within a few months, two-thirds of the inhabitants were dead and the remainder fled the island. Over the remainder of the century, both England and France attempted to establish settlements on the island, but were run off by the natives or by attack from the other country. At one point, the French allowed the Dutch to build a small fort on the island, but even that did not stabilize anything. By the end of the 1600s, St. Lucia was generally recognized as a French colony most of the time. Over a few periods in the 18th century, France and Britain declared it to be a neutral island where neither country claimed ownership. But claims on the island never seemed to remain permanent. In the 50 years before the American Revolution, the island's status changed eight times. After the Seven Years' War, France regained control. With the capture of Dominica in September 1778, both Britain and France recognized that open warfare would quickly expand in the region. Both countries had already ordered fleets in North America to make their way south during the winter months. French Admiral d'Estaing left Boston on November 4th, with his fleet repaired and ready for action. On that same day, a British fleet under Commodore William Hothman left Sandy Hook, transporting an army of about 5,000 British regulars under the command of General James Grant. On December 10th, the British fleet reached Barbados. There, Commodore Hotham joined with the larger fleet under Admiral Barrington. The soldiers remained aboard ship for two days while the officers formed a plan of attack. On December 12th, the fleet sailed for St. Lucia. By the evening of December 13th, the British began landing regulars on the island, taking the high ground without much of a fight. By the 14th, Major General Grant, supported by Brigadier Generals Robert Prescott and William Meadows, had secured the island and occupied key positions. Later that same day, General d'Estaing's fleet arrived off the coast of St. Lucia. The French fleet sailed to Martinique and was planning an invasion of Barbados when they received word of the attack on French St. Lucia. Admiral d'Estaing immediately sailed for the island in hopes of relieving the French defenders there. The French fleet had more ships and more soldiers than the British. Admiral Barrington only had seven ships of the line and three smaller frigates. His largest ship was the seventy-four-gun Prince of Wales. The French fleet under Destang had twelve ships of the line and four frigates. Eight of the French ships had at least seventy-four guns, including the eighty-gun Tonac and the ninety-gun ship Languedoc. If the French had arrived first, they almost certainly could have repelled the British assault. But the British had gotten there first. They managed to overrun local defences and had already established lines on the high grounds of the island when Admiral de Stang sailed near the harbor. British artillery opened up fire on his ships. That is how de Stang discovered that he was too late. It was already almost dark, so both fleets prepared for battle the following morning on December fifteenth. Admiral Barrington and Admiral d'Estang both formed their ships in a line of battle. The two fleets engaged in a traditional naval battle, where each fleet formed into lines, sailing past the other line and firing broadsides into each other. Admiral Destaing led the attack from aboard the Languedoc, attempting to engage the British fleet at the entrance of Carenage Bay. Accurate British fire with support from shore batteries forced the French to disengage after the first pass. Later that afternoon, the French launched a second naval attack, using all twelve ships of the line and focusing their wrath on British flagship Prince of Wales. The heavy assault on both sides led to some ship damage, but casualties were relatively light. Neither side captured or sank any ships. After several hours, the French once again disengaged. The next morning, Destaing appeared to be preparing a third line of attack, but then sailed away at the last minute. That evening, the French managed to land a force at Gross Islet Bay, several miles to the north, on another part of the island, putting over 7,000 soldiers on the beaches. The French outnumbered British forces, but the British had seized the high ground and had time to entrench. The French launched three major assaults against the British line, but were repulsed each time, taking hundreds of casualties. After several weeks, word arrived that a larger British fleet under Admiral John Byron was sailing down from Newport to join with Barrington's fleet. The French, hearing this news, boarded their ships and set sail back to Martinique on September 29th before the larger British fleet arrived. So, as 1778 ended, the French had taken Dominica and the British had taken St. Lucia. Barrington would receive great praise in London for taking St. Lucia and holding it against a superior force. The two sides would continue the battles over the various islands in 1779 and beyond, but those will have to be topics for a future episode. Next week, the British begin their southern campaign in North America with the capture of Savannah, Georgia. Thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, Lewis White, and Robert Hunter. Thanks also to Knox Press, who supports the podcast in the Robert Morris Circle. Knox Press recently released the book The Remarkable Cause by Gene O'Connor. This is a novel based on the life of Continental Congress Delegate James Lovell. It's an interesting look at a relatively forgotten founder. For more information, go to KnoxPress.com. That's K-N-O-X, as in Henry Knox, the general from the American Revolution. I also want to thank longtime supporters Standard Bearer Ryan Ramones and Sons of Liberty supporter Ryan Lemieux. I really appreciate the ongoing support. I also wanted to give a shout out to everyone who bought a t-shirt, mug, magnet, or other item from the new American Revolution podcast storefront on TeePublic. Over the Memorial Day weekend, there's another sale running, so if you haven't bought anything yet, you might still be able to get a good deal with just about a third off almost everything on the site. Also, if there are any other designs you want to see, please let me know. I'm planning to publish some new designs soon, but if you have any other ideas or suggested alterations to anything I've already posted, please let me know. I'm pretty new to the t-shirt business, so I really am looking for some feedback, good or bad. One other thing to announce this week, uh, the live meetup in Philadelphia for June 26 is on. We will be meeting at 1.30 p.m. in Washington Square, which is about a block from Independence Hall. If you want to grab lunch with me before the event, I'm probably going to be doing that at around noon, and I will give an announcement as to a location very soon. But please email me if you want the details. My email is on the website at www.amrevpodcast.com. If you can remember it from listening to the podcast, it's mtroy.history at gmail.com. Now, I know most listeners probably live too far from Philadelphia to make this event, so I suspect it will be a pretty small group. But even so, I thought it would be fun for those who could make it to just get together and chat about the revolution or, you know, ask me any other questions you have about my podcast. If you can make it on Saturday, June 26th, I look forward to meeting you. So this week I once again left the North American continent to look at fighting in the West Indies, what we today call the Caribbean. Many books about the revolution note that Britain had to reduce troop levels in America to contest other parts of the empire with France, but those books usually don't talk much about those battles. The reason I did cover some of this stuff today was that I think it is important to understand exactly what the ministry in London was focused on and exactly why they deprioritized the war in North America. Many of these tropical islands were small and contained mostly slave populations. They produced huge amounts of cash crops, particularly sugarcane. As a result, they were massively profitable for whomever controlled them. Fighting this region would only grow in the coming years, especially after Spain got involved in this conflict. Britain managed to hold on to St. Lucia throughout the war, but ended up giving it back to France as part of the Treaty of Paris. During the French Revolution, France ended slavery in France, but allowed it to continue in the colonies. It finally got around to ending slavery in all of its colonies at the end of 1794. But before that happened, Britain recaptured St. Lucia and continued to hold the locals in slavery. They did not get emancipation until 1838, when Britain finally entered slavery entirely throughout the empire. Now, some of you may note that Britain had passed the law abolishing slavery several years before that, but the law allowed for a transition period where slaves were held as apprentices by their masters in order to help them transition to freedom. So even though Britain abolished slavery, Slavery did not end as a reality for many of these people for many years afterward. St. Lucia did continue to remain a British colony and did not gain its full independence until 1979. Dominica remained a British colony after the war, and it had a similar situation for its slaves, although there were some free people of African descent living on the island, mostly of mixed descent, I guess. There were still slaves on the island, although there were free blacks as well. The slaves there did not get their freedom until the 1830s either. Dominica also obtained its independence from Great Britain in 1978. In the colonial world before the American Revolution, interaction between the colonies in North America and the island colonies in the West Indies saw a fair amount of back and forth. We see colonists moving between these colonies almost as easily as between the North American colonies. Alexander Hamilton is a famous example of a colonist born in the West Indies, then moving to North America, and his story really is not that all unusual. If you'd like to read more about this topic, my book recommendation of the week is The American Revolution and the West Indies, edited by Charles Toth. Each chapter of this book was written by a different expert. If you want a better understanding of how the islands of the Caribbean were impacted by the American Revolution and the resulting war with Britain and France and Spain, this book is a good start. The book was originally published in 1975, along with a great many other books about the era just ahead of the Bicentennial. The book's editor, Charles Toth, was a professor at the University of Puerto Rico and passed away in 2014. The book is a little over 200 pages. As I said, it's a series of chapters written on different issues related to the West Indies during the American Revolution. I've included links to the American Revolution and the West Indies on Amazon, but you can also borrow the book for free online at archive.org. For my online recommendation this week, I'm going a bit off-topic, to recommend an online resource that I've enjoyed for quite some time. It's called Founder of the Day. The host, Jason Mandras, sends subscribers a summary of a new founder just about every single day. It goes out on his mailing list, and it is completely free. You'll probably know some of the founders, but it gives you a little bit of extra information about them, and I really have to admit that some of the people I hadn't even heard of before I got my entry in Founder of the Day. It gets into some really interesting stories of people beyond those most famous of the era, getting into some pretty obscure stuff. I find it really interesting. Hope you will too. You can learn more by going to founderoftheday.com. Founder of the Day also has a popular YouTube channel where he hosts guests and also holds an interactive trivia night with Revolution fans. I seem to have become a regularly recurring guest on YouTube, where we've been chatting about various generals from the Revolutionary War. He has lots of other great guests as well. If you want to check that out, just go to YouTube and search for Founder of the Day. Of course, as always, I've included direct links on my website at www www.amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze.